Well, you know, when I was a boy, we, uh, when it was hog killing day, we, we didn't put the hog in the trough until the water was hot. Um, but I think the water's hot. And I appreciate um, the glory of a rejoicing people. Um, and uh, I, I personally am thankful for the opportunity to rejoice myself. You know, sometimes we simply look at the wrong thing for too long. Sometimes we focus on our troubles. And uh, so I appreciate uh, that little uh, five-minute sermon, Brother Luke. And uh, I want to receive that. All right, if you would open your Bibles to John 3, John 3, beginning in verse 1, we want to uh, continue on in the Gospel of John here. John 3, in verse 1. Let's, uh, let's give attention to God's Word. We'll be reading through verse 13. It's a little difficult to cut in here. Um, this section continues through about verse 22, 21. But um, we'll read through verse 13 for now. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Let's uh, let's pray. Father God, as we look at these words that you've given to us in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, Lord, we pray that you would um, fill them with... Uh, illumination for us even now and that we might be bringing them into our hearts and hearing them and applying them father that you might be glorified in our lives lord we invite you to uh, glorify yourself through this passage of scripture in christ's name we pray amen well, if you have been here on Wednesday night, uh, this, the past couple Wednesday nights, Brother Chris has actually been, was actually in this passage uh, just uh, last Wednesday. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the problem is original sin. That is where uh, Brother Chris is at right now as far as his teaching on uh, systematic theology. And uh, he came here to this passage. Um, but I want, to, I want to back up just a little bit to verses 23 and 25 through 25 of chapter 2. 
And chapter 2, if you remember, ends on a, little, on a, on a somewhat dismal note. Um, consider, for instance, verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit, which is the same word believe in verse 23. It's the same word, but Jesus did not commit himself to them or he didn't believe them. Uh, He did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of mankind because he knew what was in man. He knew what was in there. And uh, so if we look at this just briefly to kind of get the the context of our text in chapter 3, the, at the Passover feast here, that's, what is, that's the introduction now when he was in Jerusalem. At the feast, at the Passover feast, consider that, that the Passover feast was kind of the pinnacle of the Jewish religious observance. It was kind of the pinnacle of the whole religious year. The Passover feast, that celebration where many people pilgrimaged to Jerusalem. And it was at that, uh, that religious feast where the Jews were gathering together to observe their special day as the chosen people of God. Their special day. This feast marched a time when God had miraculously, as we heard in, in, uh, in Exodus, had miraculously delivered their nation from Egypt and had made the people of Israel a nation. It was at this, this was the commemoration of their deliverance from slavery, and it, and it could also be a commemoration of their becoming a nation, a people of God who were specifically gathered together for God's purpose. And, and now, consider how God has visited His people here through, how He has visited His people through the advent and the incarnation of His Son on this particular Day on this particular feast, the Son of God was in Jerusalem at the feast by the with the people of God, with the chosen nation of the Jews. He came to his own. And for instance, in Romans, you know, we think we we sometimes think a little disparagingly about the Jews. But Notice what Paul says in the, in the book of Romans in, verses, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. You have a similar passage in, in Romans 9, in verses, uh, yes, Romans 9. I tell the truth in Christ, verse 1. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. And consider the backdrop of what he is saying here. He just, got, he just came through uh, ver- chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And we have this, you know, Paul is saying that nothing is going to be able to separate us from the love of Christ. And, and he has this great joy and this resounding victory but then he comes to chapter 9 and verse 1 and says, I, I, I'm not lying to you. I have great sorrow and grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers, And from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Who is over all the the eternally blessed God. Amen. So we have Jesus, the Son of God, in this environment, in in, in Jerusalem, on this holy day, on this wonderful observance of the Passover. And we have the very Son of God, who came to this religious observance, which was a type of himself. It was a type of him. 
a lamb had to die and its blood had to be splattered and smeared across the doorpost so that the death angel would not touch your family. So we have the shadow and the substance at the same place at once. Behold the Lamb of God, as we noticed earlier in John, which bears the sin of the world. And in Colossians 2, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just, I'll just, I, I, I will be back in Colossians 2 later, Lord willing. But Colossians 2, in verse 16, where he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So, He is, our Lord, is here in Jerusalem at the feast. And if we think about this, how that this feast was a miraculous, it was a, it was a type of the miraculous deliverance of God for the people of God. Here he was here at the Passover. Never before had the Son of God attended such a feast while he was in active ministry. Think of that. That on the one hand there was a type that spoke of Christ and then Christ shows up on the scene as the very substance of what this all meant. And not only that, but he demonstrated that he was that. Notice he demonstrated that by the signs that he did, that he was the spokesman for God. He was the spokesman of God for God. He demonstrated his qualifications by the signs that he did. How he declared his heavenly father through the signs and miracles that he did at the feast. And notice what he says, And the people believed in his name, yet Jesus, in his divine insight, saw through them. He saw through them. How do we understand this passage? How do we understand it? Well, we have in John 8 a similar passage where he says, as he's, in verse 30, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. John 8, 30. Verse 31 then says, Then Jesus said to those who believed him, If you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And as he continued on and speaking about their heritage and even, you know, and they, they immediately became offended when he says, what are you talking about free? We've never been in bondage to anyone, which was ridiculous. I mean, they were under Roman, the, the Roman thumb right then. And Jesus, um, he said, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to it. Okay, he's a slave to it. So he, these, now remember, they had believed in him. And Jesus told them, well, here's the actual proof of whether or not you believe, is if you continue in my word, if you abide therein. Well, it wasn't but just a few minutes later at the end of the chapter when Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, that man that you really appreciate and marvel and esteem and say, I'm his descendants, therefore I am right with God. He said, that man, before he was, I, I am. And you remember that while he was saying that, they were already reaching for rocks. They were already reaching for rocks. And... They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Listen, it's not the profession that you make. And that is what we see in John 2, 23 through 25. It is whether or not you abide in his word. According to John 8, 
And I believe we understand verses 24 and 25 of John 2 when Jesus said that he would not commit himself to them. I believe we understand them by John 3 verses 1 through 13, the text today. That's how we understand John 2 verses 24 and 25. Listen, the ministry of Christ was not deficient. He came, as I pointed out, to his own people. People who had the shadow of him, who had the promise of his coming. He demonstrated his qualifications to be their savior. He showed them that he was the son of God by the miracles that he did. You think that the ministry of Christ was deficient in some way? Of course not. God forbid we say that. Yet, when man made a profession of faith in him... Christ didn't believe him. Christ didn't believe them. Why? Because he knew man. He knew that man was deficient. That man was faulty. That man was the problem. Not the spokesman, not the message, not the miracles. But that man was deficient. Man was unable. Man was depraved. He knew man was fickle and untrustworthy and unable. Christ knew that man was flesh. Verse 6. And that is where we go here when we go and talk about Nicodemus and we get into this very, very familiar passage of Scripture. Verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2 are the backdrop of that. And one of the reasons that, that I want to you know, talk at length about this is because of the abruptness of Jesus' words in John 3, 3. It's just a bang. I mean, he just tells it like it is. Jesus was very abrupt with Nicodemus. Why is that? Why is that? Well, verses 23 through 25 are a graphic demonstration that man must be born again. Man must be born again, even under the ministry of Jesus Christ. And just having seen the miracles that Christ did, Christ did not trust their profession. That's amazing to me. And we, we go to the same place that Brother Chris was at Wednesday evening. In John 6, verses 62 through 65. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Okay, so he's, this is what Jesus said to those who were offended in him. You know, when he said that you should eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, and it was a hard saying, and they were offended. He said, well, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? I mean, would that make a difference? Would you then, be, uh, would you then marvel at the fact that, okay, he, he came down from heaven, which is the, somewhat the argument of John 3 in verses 10 through 13 here, where he talks about no one has ascended to heaven to try to figure out what was going on in heaven, but the one who was in heaven came down to us. And, and the song we sang this, before the, the, the sermon was, Heaven came down. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Amen. And we have Christ coming down, not us going up. And, and Christ says... Would it make a difference if you would see me ascend to where I was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Not a thing. That's the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said... Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And brothers and sisters, 
if you are born again today, it's because it was granted to you by the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was granted to you to be born again. So with those couple verses in the back of John 2 as a backdrop for our text, let's come now to this chapter 3 and let's look at Nicodemus for a little while. And in a sense, Nicodemus stands at a little bit of a contrast to the last two verses of chapter 2. Nicodemus stands as a bit of a contrast and to the sad commentary of, that, uh, of, of Christ not committing himself to them. One writer even said that chapter 3 could start with the word but. But there was a man of the Pharisees whose name was Nicodemus. But that is not in there, so let's, we're, we're not going to add that. But it, it, is, it does flow with the, the, uh, with the context. I believe because of the abruptness of Jesus' response to Nicodemus' first words that we need to spend some time here in, uh, in, chapter one, in verse 1 of chapter 3. Jesus, in verse 3, just simply said to him, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And uh, interestingly, Nicodemus didn't even, didn't even uh, ask him about how to be born again or how to come to him. He, he didn't. And so what, uh, what do we see here with this man? Well, first of all, as we look at Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. In verse 10, Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. He has that definite article, the. He says in uh, verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And don't know this? So we see Nicodemus as a prominent uh, teacher. He was a Pharisee and he was a ruler of the Jews. There are a few other incidences in the, in the Gospel of John that we see a little bit of Nicodemus. In John 7, in verses 45 through 52, we have... Um, this account where the officers and the priests had sent, had sent the, um, or the chief priests and Pharisees had sent officers to arrest Christ. And when they came back, they said, you know, why have you not brought him? And the officers said, well, no man has ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have, you, have any of the rulers of the, or the Pharisees believed in him? Okay, I want you to get that picture. The, the scribes and Pharisees had sent the officers out to bring Jesus in for questioning, and they were just, the, the officers were just flabbergasted. They couldn't get themselves to try to arrest this man, this son of God. And when they came back, they said, well, nobody ever talked like this guy does. And so... The response to the offer, well, are you deceived too? Have any of us, any of us elite people, have we believed in this man? You, you see the attitude come out? Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed? You see the arrogance? You mean those who... See, see these, they, they not only... They not only... Um, put others down, but they lifted themselves up. You see that here. We know the law, but those, they don't. Now Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, now wait a minute, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Do you see that big chip on their shoulder? I mean, they were very antagonistic toward Christ. And they said, are you from Galilee too? Just look around and see if any prophet 
has ever arisen out of Galilee. Well, the thing of it was, Christ did not arise out of Galilee, did he? And by the way, as MacArthur points out, the prophet Jonah did come from Galilee. So, so you have this, this interaction that, that shows us the arrogance of the Pharisees, the, the attitude of the, that elite mentality. And then you have a, a little more on, on Nicodemus at the, at the uh, burial, at the death of Christ in John 19, 38 through 42. We don't have to spend a lot of time here, but I just wanted to point out that the man who came to Jesus by night stuck his head out in John 7, and then he completely showed himself and, gave, and showed forth his allegiance in John 19. He joined Joseph of Arimathea in asking for the burial, uh, for the body of Christ. And then he joined him and they took him and they wrapped him and Nicodemus providing the spices and the, um, the perfumes to wrap up the Lord, up and, he, and they laid him in a tomb. And so we see that there was, a, there was a coming out, so to speak, of this man who had secretly come to the Lord by night. And uh, we, we see a, a bit of that going on. But the picture we get of Nicodemus in John 3 now is a picture of a prominent Jew. He was a prominent person. As a ruler, he would have been part of the Sanhedrin, uh, a ruling body of, he, he would have been one of 71 people that governed the, nation, the Jewish nation. It was a ruling body that administered in civil and um, criminal and religious cases. They, they, they were authoritative in the Jewish nation up to cases of capital punishment, hence why that, uh, they, they had to submit themselves to the Romans before they could uh, administer capital punishment uh, to, a, to a criminal or somebody that they deemed to be worthy of death. They had to get the permission of the Roman government, which is, why they, uh, which is the case with the crucifixion of Christ. So you have... This picture of Nicodemus being prominent, of being not only a ruler of the Jews and part of the Sanhedrin, but a teacher, a Pharisee. So as a ruler, he was one of 71. As a Pharisee now, he was part of a sect that was, according to the historian Josephus, there was probably somewhere around 6,000 of this sect of the Pharisees. And not only was he a Pharisee, but he was a teaching Pharisee. He was an important man. And, and the, the Pharisees, for instance, they represented the orthodox side of the Jewish religion. They were, uh, their emphasis was on ritual and tradition. They, they put a lot of emphasis on the external observance of, of religion and we know that Christ roundly uh, indicted them for their rigid adherence you know, to tradition or to the letter of the law, that, but did not give any um, interest necessarily in the internal observance or the intent of the law. They were very much uh, external um, rather than internal. They were very much uh, legalistic versus spiritual. And when Christ, when this man comes to Christ, now we begin to see why he was as abrupt as he was. You see, Nicodemus, uh, well, well, let's consider just a little bit more on the, on the Pharisees. If you look at Matthew 23, I mean, it is just one woe after the next. Woe, 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 you scribes and, and, and hypocrites, you Pharisees. Um, Matthew 23, I'll just read a few of them just for, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, 
justice and mercy and faith. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of of them may be clean also. Um, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. And, And it goes on and on and on. In the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, Jesus just said it so clearly, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter by any means. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so you have someone coming to Christ from this sect, with this sort of reputation, with this sort of priority, this sort of emphasis. And Jesus, and he came to Jesus by night. Now we don't know why he came to him by night. But he came to him by night very possibly because of his prominence. We don't know. The guy that he hooked up with on the day of Christ's death to take care of the body, was a secret uh, admirer or a secret follower of Christ, Joseph of Arimathea. So we, we know that there was some secrecy in their, in their allegiances. And, and, and we don't necessarily have to question about the veracity of that or the, you know, how true that profession was. But because they, it seems like they stuck their necks out to ask for the body of Christ. But this man came to Christ by night. We don't know for sure why, but, but uh, we, we do know that the Pharisees were very proud of the fact that none of them believed in Christ. Um, that was John 7 and verse 48. So we have that, that bent and that, um, that picture of, of a Pharisee, but... but Nevertheless, there was genuine interest in Nicodemus. There was genuine desire, I believe, in knowing. Why would he have come to Christ? Why would he have not, you know, why did he even come at all if, there was, if he was just being a hypocrite? I think there was something going on that, that interested Nicodemus in this man, in the Lord Jesus. And so he came and said, Rabbi, we know. Now, I'm not sure what that means particularly, but, but it's very possible that Nicodemus was referring in part to maybe the rest of the Sanhedrin. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. We're trying to deny it. We're trying to spin this. You know, you know we've got our, our you know, fake news going on out here. We're trying to spin this thing so that, you know, show that we're not part of the, we're not buying this, but we know that you are a teacher from God because no man could do these things unless God were with him. And then Jesus just unloads on him. He just lets him have it. He, in a sense, said, you come with your perception. You come and tell me what you know. Well, let me tell you what I know about you. You must be born again. Rabbi, we know. But Jesus said, it really doesn't matter what you know. You need to know this, that unless, he says, most assuredly, barely, barely, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or unless one is born from above. And he says this like three times. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I want to, I want to just point out that what seems to be going on in, chapter, in, in verse 2, I'm not 100% sure what Nicodemus' heart was or his intent. 
in saying we know these things about you and we are willing to at least give some credence to the fact that you are a prophet from God or, or what that means. But he did not go as far as saying that we believe you to be the Christ or the Messiah or the Son of God. But it seems to me like Jesus was saying you Pharisees might see yourselves as elite, but I tell you, unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God much less enter in. And so he gave him his perception. You must be born from above. Because all your religion that you have been doing and teaching is just an exercise of the flesh. That's all that was going on. The exercise of the Jewish religion, as, the, as it was in that day, as it came from the priority of the Pharisees was simply an exercise of the flesh. Remember what he says in John six uh, 3, verse 6. He says, That which is born of the flesh, that which derives its origin from the flesh, remains flesh. It doesn't matter how much you exercise it. It doesn't matter how many good works you hang on you hang on to it or or what you uh what you want it to look like it is still flesh and if you go to luke 18 and verses 9 through 14 there's a wonderful illustration there of what flesh exercising it only produces more flesh that is the account of the of the uh tax collector and the um the publican and the Pharisee, going to the temple. And you, you know the account very well. But in, in that account, um, he spoke that parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. See, you can't separate that. Whenever your righteousness is from your own doing, you can't help but despise others who are not at that level. You will always despise others because you are glorifying yourself. That is what the flesh does. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The, the Pharisee stood and prayed, I thank you that I'm not like he is. Well, th- there you have the flesh producing more flesh. That despicable, self-righteous attitude is what we see here. And that is why Christ is saying to Nicodemus, look, what you guys are producing is coming from the flesh. You must be born again. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God with this mentality. There is no way for you to enter. Here in this passage... is a very sobering word. Uh, Actually, two words. It is the word unless, or in the King James, it's except. It's the word unless and must. Three times this is used. This emphatic declaration is made. Unless or except. This condition is met. There is no recourse or remedy whatsoever. No exceptions, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Listen and listen well. Anything less than the new birth will not suffice for you to enter into the kingdom of God. Nothing less. It, he, he just, Jesus just simply drives this home. No exceptions to this mandate. You must be born from above in a spiritual rebirth. And and you can hear me all you want today. But if you go through life without having this condition met, without having your own heart reborn, these words will ring in your consciousness for eons and eons. The accusation will be made to you to the unregenerate who has heard these words, 
where it says, you must be born again. You must be born again. And there will be no way to be born again. Brothers and sisters, what innocent flesh lost in the garden Corrupt flesh cannot restore. It's, it's not possible. It's not possible. And, and here in this passage, you may be this or you might be that, but you must be this. You might be a farmer or you might be a carpenter or a politician or a preacher, but you must be born again. You may be, you know, a doctor or an astronaut or a nurse or a wife or a husband, but you must be born again. You may be so many things. You might be so many things, but you must be this. You might be rich or you may be poor or you may be neither, but you must be born again. You might have a certain social strata that you attain to. You might be a slave or you might be free or you might be this or that. You might be an outcast or you might be an insider, but you must be born again. You might be old or you might be young or somewhere in between, but you must be born again. There's just no getting around this emphatic declaration in John 3 where Jesus three times says, you must be born from above. And what we are looking at in John 3 verses 1 through 13 is kind of the, the sovereignty of God's side of our salvation. If you go from John 13 or verse 14 And following to verse 22, now we see what happens in the perspective of the man or the woman who becomes born again. They believe, you see, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, so the one who is born again, he on the one side it is God who has birthed him from above. He must be born of the Spirit. But he's believing on the other hand. He is believing. And so we have kind of this divide, and that's why I stopped at verse 13. Because it does seem that, the, that this first chapter, this first three, the 13 verses of John 3, they focus on you must be born from above. The flesh is flesh, and you can't do anything with it. You can't become spiritual by exercising the flesh. That just undermines us because that's all we've got to work with. Do you see the desperate straits that original sin has brought us into? Desperate straits. Because if you are not able to become born again, you're lost and doomed forever. It's a, it's a profound conundrum that you, you recognize your desperation, but if God doesn't have grace, and see, that's the whole point is that those of us who are born again, we recognize that the grace of God has saved our soul. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and praise God, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born from above is spirit. Now, I want to... I might have to come back and and speak more at length about the language of the scriptures in regards to being born again. You know, you have the language of birthing. You know, someone who comes to salvation, they are described as being born. You have, in other places, you have the language of being quickened or made alive. Uh, Colossians, we, we might look at that briefly. But you also have... Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 
if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. They are recreated. And just as you weren't involved at your first creation, you know, it has this sort of language of the sovereignty of God coming in and birthing us, doing His work in us. And, you know, as far as I know, uh, no baby was ever brought forth by itself. You know, it, it never was able to birth itself. So um, th- there's this language of, of scriptural language that, and terms that reflect on this entrance into salvation. We, we might look at that before we go further. But for today, I, I want to focus a little bit more on this, this idea of the flesh, that what is flesh remains flesh. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, I'll just read this for you. Um, there, there are... I, I read this chapter, and I was just amazed. But Jeremiah 2, verse 13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water, that can hold no water. So the one evil is that we've forsaken the Lord, we've walked away from the fountain, but the second evil is that we have made another fountain. We've made our own way to come to God. And we have left the bubbling spring that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have partaken of the runoff from the latrine you know we we have we have and we have done two things we have we have left and then we have raised up the false one there are two evils and colossians 2 as we think about this this flesh being flesh whenever we leave the spiritual um, when we leave the spiritual answer to our sin, we ultimately fall back on the only thing we have left. That is the flesh. And that flesh is that cistern that we hewed out that can hold no water. We fall back on. And so that is the application I, I want to leave with us here as, we, as believers now. In Colossians 2, we have this beautiful picture or this beautiful exhortation in 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 verse 8 he says be aware colossians 2 he says be aware watch out for this particularly lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to christ For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily or in bodily form. And you, brothers and sisters, are complete in him. There's no need for you to be out here pursuing something else, some vain philosophy that somebody has force-fed you and tried to get you to believe. You don't have to even concern yourself that because you're already complete in him. You see, that's a beautiful picture that you are complete in Christ. You don't need to be concerned about, you know, regulating the flesh to some certain degree because it's already been conquered. That's the argument of Colossians 2. And he says, And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him, Christ, from the dead. And you, he says, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... Okay, dead in your flesh, you see. He has made alive, or he has quickened together with him. When he raised him out of the grave, he quickened the rest of us with him. Praise God. So so the, the argument here of Colossians 2 is that, okay, because you are dead in him and you're raised to new life, why are you doing all these other extracurricular things that are distracting you? that are taking you away from 
the pursuit of Christ that is actually robbing the Lord Jesus of the glory that He deserves for saving you. You know, why are we distracted? He says, be aware, lest someone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. But He has made us alive together with Him in our union with Christ, you see. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, because of these great and wonderful spiritual truths, let no one, he says, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are merely a shadow. They're just simply, they were given to us to show us a type of Christ, to, to teach us about the Christ. But the substance is of Christ. Let no one, he says. You see this exhortation. Don't let this happen to you people. Don't be distracted. Don't let people take this away from you. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by what? His fleshly mind. That is going back to that same carnal mind that, that um, you know, someone, speaking of a false teacher who has, who is, is exercising his fleshly mind to bring us back into bondage, as Galatians says. Paul says, I didn't give them a minute of my time. Actually, I think he says, not an hour. And not holding fast to the head. That is the problem with these fleshly, um, these fleshly um, teachings from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? That's the next word. Why? Why as though you were still living by the basic principles of the world? Why are you subjecting yourselves to regulations? What is the point? Your life is not contained in the do's and don'ts anymore. Your life is contained in Christ, you see. It's not do this and do that and you shall live. No, you live because you're in union with Christ. His death and burial and resurrection are spiritually applied to your life by faith in Him, brothers and sisters. And so now he's saying, you know, why are you subjecting yourselves to the regulations as if those were still the ruling factor in your life? You see, your flesh is dead. In Christ. Doesn't mean that we don't still have flesh to deal with, but from a standpoint of justification, we no longer approach things at all in this fashion. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. I want to finish with the last verse of chapter uh, 2, chapter 2 and verse 23 of Colossians, 2.23, Colossians. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. You know, they look good, but you know who they glorify? You know who they glorify? They glorify the one who practices them. They do not glorify Christ. If you are exercising the flesh in your pursuit of holiness, if that is all that you're working with, if there's no spiritual energy whatsoever inside, then your pursuit of, the, of holiness through exercising the flesh only glorifies you and the sect that you are a part of, the cult that you are a part of the Pharisees that you are a part of. That is who gets the glory. For any perceived holiness, if there's anything that would look good to the world and they glory in it, it's your glory. That's all it is. And it's not worth having. 
because you won't have it. Don't let anyone cheat you. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance which is what a hypocrite is only worried about, an appearance. It's the word actor where we get, that's what it means to be a hypocrite. We act. But these are just an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed, fleshly imposed religion. False humility and neglecting of the body, sure, we, we, we do that. We put aside these things maybe, but they have no value against the indulgence of the flesh. None. No value. Actually, what it does is it makes you like the Pharisee looking down at the publican. I'm glad I'm not like he is, you know. I, I, have, I have put so many restrictions on my flesh that I don't do that. But, but it's the very essence of that is flesh, you see. The very essence of that mentality is flesh, and it glorifies the flesh and has no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So, I, I, I had this thought that it just stood out to me that if we, if we could somehow by putting enough st- structure, enough strictures on our flesh to gain some level of holiness that would be acceptable to God, then hell wouldn't be eternal. Think about it. But God is so clearly demonstrating to us through the doctrine of hell is that you can pur- punish someone in hell for an eternity and it's still not redemption. There is no redemption in punishing the body, whether it's from God or from man. You cannot redeem your flesh, your person, by laboring. It's an impossibility. Hell would be redemptive if it were otherwise. Where you could... What is it, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory you could enter in for a certain amount of time and finally you've paid enough for your sins no that's just simply punishing the unregenerate you cannot punish the unregenerate enough to pay for it it's impossible it's impossible you must be born again you have to be born again there's no other recourse By way of encouragement, if you are born again, your greatest problem is behind you. Praise God. Praise God. If you are born again, your greatest trouble is behind you. Now we have a future in heaven for sure. There in those mansions sublime. If you don't know whether you're born again or not, come to Jesus if you have to, come to Jesus by night. You know, how many times have people come to the Lord by night? You know, you walk out the next morning after a storm. You say, oh, it must have stormed last night. There are limbs down in the yard. The wind blows where it will. You hear the sound thereof. And if you come to Jesus by night, the day will reveal it. The day will reveal it. The sun will reveal it. What happens, that, that this passage about the wind, it just simply means that it cannot happen without consequences. You don't know where it will happen next or where it comes from, except we know it comes from the Lord. But we don't know how it functions. Do you know the laws of the wind? No. But when you wake up after a storm, you might have slept right through it, but you see, oh, there's evidence of a high wind last night. And I just want to say that if I have undermined your confidence in your new birth, if, if there is a possibility to shake your confidence in whether you're born again or not, remember that when, the, when that shaking happens, what falls out? The dead limbs. 
the things that can be shaken. That's what falls out. There is no harm in having you examine whether, am I truly born again? Listen, come to Jesus. Joel 2 says that all those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you don't know whether you're saved or not, call on the name of the Lord. The Lord will take care of it. He will save you. He has said He will. Call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. You shall be born again. And if you're not sure whether you're born again or not, call on the name of the Lord. And don't be... I, I was thinking about saying, well, if you want to be born again, talk to, me about, talk to me after the message. That is ridiculous. You need to talk to the Lord. You know, we have this whole idea that we can maybe... I know it's out here. It's not here in this congregation. If you want to be born again, then just come up here. No. I'm willing to point you to the Lord, but you need to converse with the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. He says he promises it. Well, thank you for your kind attention. And uh, 